A C-130 fire tanker is dropping a load over a fire in California when something goes very wrong. What caused this flight to end in such horrible failure? Welcome back to the Heart Landing Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. I think I forgot the S on landings. <laughs> I was wondering. Yeah, I wasn't going to say what? anything. Try that again? No. Okay. <laughs> We're we'll a disaster as per usual. And it's, it's a disaster podcast. So, updates. We're recording on time? We're recording on time. Woo! Um, I don't think there's any new patrons. I think the patrons that we've gotten have rejoined us. Yeah. So, welcome back. If you are not new here, hello. Hello. If you are, hi, this is us. You should go back and listen to other stuff (laughs) because you don't realize how crazy we are until about 20 episodes into the podcast. We are crazy. Welcome. You should go back and listen to previous episodes. And if you're a patron, Um, if you're a new patron, go start listening to the post episodes and you'll realize, wow, we are nuts. For this episode, I recommend you go back and listen to episode seven. Oh, re- oh, really? <laughs> Damn. Okay. That's a long way back. <laughs> Am I going to remember to link that on the website? No. I'm not going to uh, remember no. what episode that is. No, the funny part was, so the report today had a very short analysis, so I read it out loud to Heather, and she was like, that again? I'm like, oh yeah, you've listened to that episode again. seven. I don't remember what episode seven was. You can say that again. That again. That again. No, you'll figure it out. Okay. I'm sure I will, because that happens quite often, in fact, but... I don't remember what episode seven was. I'm I, 100% honest. That was over two. Pretty sure it's episode seven. I don't Over recall. three years ago now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, things have changed. Hold on. Like let this. me make sure that I'm not crazy slash dumb. We no, have. No, it's, def- it's definitely episode seven. New stuff. The May newsletter should have come out last week. There are trivia questions on there, if you're new here, that you can answer. You don't get anything other than, like, brownie points if you answer them correctly, I guess. But <laughs> Bob always tries. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> Bob's got fun. fun brownie points. This month's ones aren't that bad. They're actually pretty what, easy. What did you pick? I'm, don't say it out loud. The next four down the list, <laughs> I just go down the list. We have a cool. list of trivia questions, and I just pick the next four out of the list. Yeah, those are not as fun. <laughs> you're the one who came up with them yeah we put those on there i know they're all they're but they're not like fun fact they're they're like no, just they don't have to be fun sometimes they just have to be doable <laughs> that being said you should also check out the merch page yes and get merch we have lots of that so much merch so, so much. much merch that i'm sure people will never buy but we have we have it you want a towel we got towels, we got towels. wait we haven't ordered that yet no, we you haven't. Want, you want a suitcase? We got a suitcase. We haven't ordered that yet either. We have passport covers. <laughs> haven't done that. <laughs> we have pajamas. We still don't. I want to do that. I think that'd be fun. There's bumper stickers. I mean, you name it, we got it. So We got some. And if we don't, you should let me know and I can make it happen. Yeah, we pretty much can add anything. Do we have magnets? Yes. I'm okay. sure. That is an easy Yeah, we. Thing. you have one of them on your refrigerator downstairs. Oh. No, I mean like... um, 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 um. Yeah. <laughs> like bumper sticker style magnets because some people don't like putting bumper stickers on i don't there. know if they make them okay i was just curious i'll look but I don't um, think they make them heather who was just on the last episode now has my mother's minivan and she she wants magnets and uh ducks if you would like ducks if you're new here we sign ducks 
Rubber ducks. Send them to people for free. The ducks. If you would like them. You know, we should probably recap that story. Okay. It's been a minute. So if you're new, hash new in the last couple of months, like last six months, Nick. Once upon a time. Did a thing. Uh, Yeah. So my dad and my stepmom were traveling on a cruise. Uh, I was going to be staying with my step siblings. And the night of, Tiffany was like, oh, we need, this is my stepmom. We need, uh, she needed like spray bottles or something. Something from the dollar store. The dollar store, which we lived right behind. So it was like, okay, great. I'll go over there and get it. And And I took my stepsister with me. Angelica. And I was like, let's go. So we went over there and I started searching through the many things at the dollar store and was like, I'm going to find something and I'm going to hide it in their bag. I'm going to offer to bring their bags to the car and I am going to find something to hide in their bag. And then I found a pack of like seven ducks for a dollar and I was like, that. Rubber ducks. We're going to put them everywhere. And so we did. We did that whole plan. It all worked out. I bought like three packs of them and we hit them everywhere. And they didn't find them until they got on the cruise. And ever since then, my dad has been collecting rubber ducks and brings them everywhere. Everywhere. Puts them in pictures that he puts on social media. There's one. He has one in his airplane. He has them in the cars. He leaves them in cars when he sells them. Like, (laughs) so so there's been this ongoing um, duck war battle. It's not really ongoing as much anymore. No, no, no. It's still ongoing. It's just different. Developed. We we used to send rubber ducks back and forth because now they live in Portland. And so it became, uh, well, for your birthday, you get ducks. For Christmas, you get ducks. And so once upon a time, Tiffany sent us 200. For Christmas. And said, thus ends the duck war. I'm like, oh, that's what you think. Yeah. So since then, we have not sent them any rubber ducks. No, we have been a lot more tactful about this and bought them rubber duck themed things. T-shirts. I sent your dad a duck, but that was because it was from the Titanic. (laughs) Yeah, that's different, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I brought those to him. Those have meaning. If they have meaning... It's a little bit of a different story, but just sending rubber ducks doesn't happen anymore. No, like we've done shirts, we've done mugs, Mm -hmm. we've done cup holders. There's a shower curtain I want to get for them. (laughs) They only have, the shower curtain only goes in like Skylar's bathroom. It's fine. (laughs) Anyways. But but then we had 200 rubber ducks we had nothing to do with, so we're like, we in a joking. That's not 100% true, because we hid them at your grandmother's. We hid some at my grandmother's, So it was like 150. (laughs) (laughs) Which, his grandmother left, like, more than half of them, just wherever she found them. Still scattered about that I know, I've I've found She loves them. Where I'm like, I definitely put that there. She loves them. My dad participated. He was there for that. He was the one who orchestrated it. Yeah. Let's be clear. (laughs) And we... He said, we are going to hide these at your grandmother's house. And we all participated. And he was like, and everyone's going to participate. That's how that happened. We all took a handful of ducks. Three in her china cabinet, one on her chandelier, a bunch in her plant pots. There's some in different cabinets in her kitchen. There's like some on her mantle. They're all over. I hid some in her couch. Yeah. She probably never found them. No. But anyway, we had a bunch of extra ducks, and we were like, we should say that we're going to sign them and send them to people. And then... And then we ran out. (laughs) Then we ran out multiple times. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah, so now we've had to order ducks several times over, which is great. I mean, I like that we're able to do this. Is Uh, it financially stable to just send ducks for free? No. But but the podcast still pays for it. It's pretty inexpensive pretty to send inexpensive. these. Even I mean, unless actual. you live in Australia. Right. We can't send anything to Australia, period. But Sorry. for most of the world, it's pretty cheap still to send these ducks, and the podcast pretty well pays for it. So. Yeah. So there you go. That's the story behind the ducks. Paige is willing to sign, sign ducks. And send. Also, 
we got a thing on Spotify for podcasters, which is Anchor, which usually houses our thing through Spotify. And someone asked Paige for an info dump, but I don't know what you mean by that. Do you want an info dump like who is Paige? Like we can do that. Yeah. Or do you want Paige on to talk about themselves? Like you're going to have to be more specific. Yeah. We need to know details. What do you want out of this info dump? Because we can do it. It's been a really rambly beginning. Yes. But so. that's okay because this isn't going to, once again, be super long. So what are we covering today, Nick? Today. We are covering Tanker T-130. Yes, it had a flight number. You were looking at me like, what? Yeah. I didn't know it had a flight number. It had a flight number. Uh, Did you I, say the flight number? Tanker, Tanker T-130. Oh, I thought that was the plane. Close. Uh, the, <laughs> the tail number is November 130 Hotel Papa. That's correct. 130. Well, even closer than, yeah, we'll get there. Thank you to Alan. 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 Not that Alan. Alan. The one who doesn't make Miranda mad. Not yeah. Alan. It's Alan. Alan, our patron Alan. Yes. For recommending this episode. Thank There's you. a difference. Okay. There is. Decisively a difference. Yes, there is. So, uh, this accident occurred on June 17th of 2002. We'll talk about it, but if you are in the aviation community, you probably know this one, but you don't know that you know this one. If you... That's how I was. Yeah. If you watch videos of anything, you we'll, we'll get there, but if you, you watch, know this one. If you watch plane crash compilations like yours truly. Or anything even related. I mean, just for some reason, this just comes up all the time. It's a very dramatic thing. It's very dramatic. We'll get there. But this, yeah, you know this one, but you don't know you know this one. This was a Lockheed C-130A. So, yes. Yes, this is a C-130. And, yes, that is why the tail number is November 130. And that's also why the flight number is T-130 for Tanker-130. So it all meshes together. It all makes sense. It all makes sense. Does it? This C-130A was a very old C-130 at the time, and it was converted to a firefighting tanker. It is in civilian use, public use at the time. It is a former military aircraft, as all C-130s are. There were hardly any that were produced for civilian use from scratch. Is the C-130 the military version of the DC? No, it's just no. its its own thing. It was oh, never okay. uh, anything else. It's always been a C-130. The C-130s are big quad prop, turbo prop, high wing cargo carrying monsters that are capable of doing Truly incredible things, landing and taking off in short distances. And leak like hell. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they are They are still to this day, they still make these and they make newer versions of them. There are so many versions of the C-130 and they still look pretty much the same. And when we went to the air show yeah. in September, yeah, we walked under the wing of a C-130 and one of the crew was like, hey, I don't recommend you walk there. It drips. Yeah, I And used- we watched like oh, a yeah. solid drip. I used to work around C-130s a lot, and they would have gigantic drip pans underneath the engines and underneath the spare fuel tanks. And I mean, in days, it would leak mm, gallons <laughs> of fuel. And that's just how they naturally are. Like, everybody's like, yeah, they were just kind of engineered that way, and they've always been that way. Uh, maybe fix it? And Well, so they're just built that way, and some of it is because they can't figure out how to just make them seal which is terrible it has a lot to do with the materials they're built out of on top of how they are designed but they can't really fix that problem (laughs) 
I don't love so, that. So the C-130s are just super leaky airplanes. That's that. But yeah, this is a tanker-modified C-130 for public use for firefighting. It was a retired military aircraft. That's the whole backstory, really. It was owned by a company. Out of Wyoming. I don't remember what it was. It's in the report somewhere. But its initials are HP, which is why its tail number is November 130. Hotel Papa. Yes. So it doesn't really matter much. That company is a very small company. They were out of Wyoming, but we'll talk about it. That doesn't even have anything to do with anything. So company doesn't. The operator does. The operator does. Company has nothing to do with it. Pterodactyl sounds. (laughs) (laughs) The captain, no names, was 42 years old. He's male. Weird thing and weird how they put this, but as of March of 2002, so mm, several months prior, he had 10,833 hours total, of which 1,790 hours were on the C-130. Do you have all of what he's rated on? He was rated on a lot of things. I read it. Holy He was rated on a lot of things, and most of them are military-type aircraft and tankers. (laughs) Hold on. Modified tankers. Let me grab the list, because it's pretty impressive. Most of them are aircraft that nobody knows about. Let me put it that way. His certificate was endorsed with type ratings for the DC-6, DC-7, CYP-4Y, FA-119C, DC-826, LP-2V, L-382, which is the civilian version of the C-130E. This one. Yeah. It's, it's very similar to this one. The E is a little bit longer version of the C-130. He was approved to fly the C-130A, P-2V, and PB-4Y2 aircraft. Again, most of those are tankers, modified old military aircraft with new designations. So you probably don't know what most of those are, because even I don't. So the first officer was 36 years old, male. As of February of 2002, he had 2,407 hours total. And I have no idea how many hours he had on the type because they didn't list it anywhere. Awesome. So not a clue. But we can assume not a whole lot since there was only 2,407 hours total. The flight engineer was 59 years old, male, and had 1,630 hours total, of which all were on this C-130. How do you start on a C-130? Be a flight engineer. (laughs) Brilliant. Modern C-130s don't necessarily require flight engineers, but they still fly some that do. (laughs) Oh, boy. I mean, C-130s are very robust aircraft, and they are very, they last a long time, but they are crazy machines and there are so many versions of them and there have been so many throughout the years anyways this flight was fighting a fire in california as i would assume from nevada this was one of the worst wildfire seasons on record it was 2002 it was like 72 million acres or something like that is it as bad as it was a few years ago i don't know but it was still pretty bad i don't know how it compares didn't look that deep into it but it was recorded as one of the worst on record. To put in perspective, this was not the only accident of firefighting aircraft that year. Right. I wouldn't think so. Drew a lot of attention because of that. So, we'll get there. Unfortunately, firefighting accidents are still relatively regular, but we'll talk about that later on. It's a very dangerous job. It's one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. It is. For a reason. This flight took off out of Minden Tahoe Airport. That's what it's called today. They just said it took off out of Minden, which is in Nevada. It's just south of Reno. It is very close to Lake Tahoe. It took off out of Minden Tahoe Airport at 2.29 p.m. local time on a firefighting mission with 3,000 gallons of fire retardant. Big cargo airplane can carry a lot of weight. I would hope so. The flight was being operated on a company flight plan under Part 91, 
by the U.S. Forestry Service and the Department of Agriculture. So while there was a company that owned it, they were being operated by... USFS. Yes, the Forestry Service and Department of Agriculture. At the time, that's how pretty much all of this worked for firefighting services. This, even though they were based out of Minden when they were doing this operation, Minden was an airport that was set up for firefighting because it's so close to Lake Tahoe and so many other things. It is very close proximity to Reno. It has so much traffic for firefighting, they actually made a base for (laughs) refilling fire retardant at this airport. And the fire that they were fighting was very close by, actually. Not far at all. It was only a few minutes flight for a C-130. Just straight south, but because Nevada has an angled border, (laughs) a slanted border, that straight south put them in California. This was the sixth drop flight of the day. It's still the middle of the day for the aircrafting crew. Most of these flights were relatively short, and as they would be. They pretty much fill the tank, take off, go down to the fire, fly over it once, fly over it twice, drop, go back to the airport, refill, do it all over again. Happens fast. Whole thing happens fast. They proceeded directly to the Cannon Fire, which was located near Walker, California. The previous five drops that the crew and aircraft had made were flown on the north to south axis of the fire, so they flew from north to south over the fire and dropped. This flight would be the first where they would do an east to west pass of the fire for the day. The flight reached the fire quickly and made a practice pass over the drop area at a higher altitude than the intended drop. Just make sure they're going to drop where they intend. These days, they usually have uh, lead aircraft when they do these kinds of things. So you don't have to do a double pass. Right. So you don't have to do these kinds of things. They just follow the lead aircraft in. Usually these lead aircraft are like King Airs and stuff. They can actually keep up but are small enough to go observe and maneuverable enough. And then they have these little like smoke containers with either red or white smoke. They fly over the fire, puff the smoke right where they want to drop. Next big aircraft comes in, drops. It's cool. There is a movie my dad was very insistent that we watch that actually demonstrates this. Yes. Not the most accurate movie in the world, but still pretty cool to watch. I mean, it's cool to see a lot of the old aircraft and stuff flying. Yeah. The movie is called Always. It's from 1989. Yes. Some people are probably like, yeah, I know that movie. But yeah, Always. My dad. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) My dad yelled at me for like a year that we needed to watch it. Yeah. And then it was really cool because one of the aircraft they flew was a Catalina, and then we got to see one at the air show. A live flying Catalina, which is pretty cool. They are relatively rare. Crazy looking airplane, though. Weird. Yeah. The pass was to require a course heading 90 degrees perpendicular to a ridge line, then down a steep drainage valley. The aircraft came back around and began the drop pass. The aircraft flew over the ridge line and down the east side of the drainage valley then beginning the fire retardant drop, so they started dropping along the fire line. Things happen very quickly from here. There's no escaping that. As the aircraft was completing its drop, the airplane pitched nose up slightly to arrest its descent and begin leveling out because the maneuver that they typically do for drops like this, especially in a valley, is quite literally they do an arc. So they come down in, they pull up, do a water drop, and then pull out from there, go up. In altitude, because water drops have to be done at a pretty low altitude so that the water doesn't just vaporize, basically. Right. It needs to be able to localize. So they have to do this pass. The fire. Right. It has to be very low pass. And that's why this is the most dangerous, one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. Because you get very close to the ground. Yes. In very large, fast aircraft. (laughs) So that's a whole thing. As the aircraft was completing its drop, the airplane pitched nose up slightly 
to arrest his descent, leveling out. The nose continued to pitch up to a positive nose-up attitude, so still dropping retardant. The unthinkable suddenly happened. The two wings suddenly folded upward and separated from the fuselage. Yep, right off. At the wing roots. Miranda does know about this much because... We've seen the videos. <laughs> much is as things happen, the, this video is very common. And dramatic. Yes, there's a yeah, whole video of it, the whole thing. You see it come up and the wings go whoop and they yep. fly up and they snap off. Yep. These, are, these are not bird wings. They are not intended to flap. They are no. not intended to flap. <laughs> and they didn't. <laughs> they so. fell off. The fuselage continued traveling in the direction of the drop, but it began rolling to the right till inverted and pitched toward the ground out of control. Of course, As you would without wings. There's no wings. There's nothing to control. Right. Airflow. Right. The aircraft crashed in the wooded mountainous area, completely destroyed upon impact. I'm sure that didn't help the fire situation. I'm sure not. The wings fell to the ground separately and were completely destroyed as well. The three crew on board perished in the accident, unfortunately, because high rate of speed, how, how large would aircraft, you not, yeah. inverted right onto the cockpit, into the woods. like, And it probably exploded burned. a little bit, too. So. It, a little you bit. Know, you know, the video doesn't continue enough to say that it did. The report doesn't even say that it did. I know that they weren't carrying a whole lot of fuel, because each they had already done, this was the sixth drop, and they were not refueling between any of these. They fueled in the morning, went out. Did a bunch of drops. They were burning fuel. They probably didn't actually have a lot of fuel on board. When the wings snapped, which you can see in the video, there wasn't even actually fire. Normally, when wings snap off of an airplane, immediate fire. <laughs> well, that's where the tanks usually are. And, yes. and then combustion chambers are very close by. Yes. Now, the C-130 is built a little differently, but still, it doesn't mean that this couldn't happen. So, it separated. The video is, yes, very dramatic. You go watch the airplanes just flying along, and all of a sudden, the wings just fold right up. Yep. And the airplane falls. End of story. Yep. You can't see the impact of the aircraft, and that's probably for the better. It does fall behind a hill, as they are filming, because it is very low, as it was. And that's about it. There's not really a whole lot else to talk about beyond that. It happened fast, and dramatically. the whole thing, yes, dramatically, it was caught on camera. The whole, the whole flight was very short. So, Christy, why did it structurally give out on itself? <laughs> yeah. That's what happened. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Quite obviously, because that's... What happens when structural failures happen, like uh, wings come off? Uh huh. So this investigation was performed by the NTSB. The NTSB. Anyway. Anyway. This report does not mention any black boxes on this aircraft. That doesn't mean it didn't have them, but I'm inclined to think it didn't. But don't quote me on that either. Depends on how old the airplane was. Old. Very but old. but we covered I know. plenty old that had black boxes that were retrofitted. So 2002, this airplane was built in. Do you have it? 1958. Um, unless it's, it was retrofitted, it oh, might not. Yeah. Old. Oh, this is an old C-130. Uh, that makes me think that they weren't taking care of it. Remember how I said it was a C-130A? This is an original C-130. <laughs> this is the C-130. This is the C-130 as the C-130 was originally designed. Also, don't get ahead of me. <laughs> okay, you gave that away when you said it was from 1958. I'm getting the whole Yonkers thing. Okay. Deja vu. Retired military. So they did have a video of the accident, as we have mentioned several times. Yes. Um, th you can find it if you just look up the tail number on YouTube. It's like a 14-second video. Yeah, it's very short. There's not a lot to see other than the dramatic. While it was very short, it did show that the right wing detached while pulling up and was very shortly followed by the left wing one second later. It looks almost 
simultaneous. Yeah. <laughs> Don't make fun of how I say things. <laughs> I was going to go with synchronous, and then you said the word. Just so we can all reminisce. Reminisce is not the word to use. Yeah, it looks like it happened. Oh, there's a little bit of fire. Small fire, but it didn't last long. So yeah. it looked like it happened at the same time, but there was a very short delay. Yes. Very, very small. Turns out, wing detachment is not a um, normal occurrence. Immediate thought. Was the structural limit of the aircraft exceeded, or was there a pre-existing problem? Let's address the first question, and to answer it, we need to know what the structural limits of the aircraft were. For the original military C-130, the U.S. Air Force Flight Manual listed that the maximum G-load factor for a design gross weight of 108,000 pounds was positive 3G or negative 1G. At the maximum alternate gross weight of 124,200 pounds, the max G-load factors were 2Gs positive and 1G negative. Additionally, the flight manual listed operational limits in terms of gross weight and airspeed limits for different load factors. But then the aircraft was transitioned to civilian use, and it had a new flight manual along with it. In that manual, the FAA approved a 2.5G limit with no structural limiting factors. Which is crazy to me. Yeah, that's not how anything works. Now, newer C-130s, I will tell you, have much higher structural limits because they were intended now to be even attack aircraft, so now they have very high maneuverability. And so they've done a lot of changes internally to the C-130s, even though they look very similar to the way they always have. So newer C-130s don't have this problem, but these ones were really just intended to be cargo A to B. That was the whole point. The maximum maneuver load factor with any amount of flaps, regardless of cargo load, gross weight, or airspeed, was 2Gs, which were the conditions under which the accident occurred. They did have 50% flaps. Again with the percent flaps, by the way. Yeah. Different aircraft. It's two episodes things. in a row. Just putting that out there. Two different aircraft, but both have this, but it, you know what? It's just very normal. Okay. Like different aircraft have different configurations, and they just, I don't know. This 2G value was determined based on a stress analysis performed, dated... June 17th, 1949. Don't love that. Holy Yeah. <laughs> over 50 years ago. Yeah. Don't love that. Just after World War II. Yeah. And we're talking about 2002. Yeah. That, that's not, that's not, that's like oh, pr- pretty close to 60 years. Hate and it. you yeah. never decided to, re- okay. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Based on fuel consumption and initial loading on the day of the accident, the estimated weight at the time of the accident was 91,553 pounds. So being overweight was not a factor. Huzzah. I didn't think it would be if they had already dumped a bunch of their... I mean, yeah, tar- but they, yeah. they got to cover their bases, okay? Yeah. Yes. They hadn't even been taken on I fuel. I realized that. So did they exceed the G-load limit? To determine one way or the other, the investigators conducted a performance study to determine the operating speed and load factor during the retardant drop and wing separation. This was primarily done using the video. Based on this, investigators concluded that the crew was operating at 146 knots, just below the 150-knot limit airspeed for the drop. But then they calculated the load factor and found that it exceeded the maneuver load factor constraint of 2Gs. They estimated the load factor at the time of wing separation to be 2.4Gs. And that doesn't factor in potential wind gusts or turbulence that would require corrections to the calculations. Would that have caused the wing separation? Eh, they didn't actually say that it could because there were extenuating circumstances. Also, most aircraft are made with like a safety factor. A little bit of a safety safety factor factor in the top. Of like a couple of G's more. Or point like three G's more probably wouldn't have done much damage. Maybe a little bit, but it wouldn't cause the wings to come off. To snap? Yeah. yeah. Again, extenuating circumstances. Yep. Time to address the other question. 
Were there pre-existing conditions that contributed to the accident? My guess is, yeah. How did you guess? I don't know. Investigators conducted a metallurgical examination of the right wing and found multiple fractures. Fatigue, fatigue cracks! Welcome back to the fatigue podcast! Don't you guess? <laughs> Multiple fatigue cracks were found in the lower surface skin panels at the center wing station 5-3 right at the stringer 16 and 17. Does that mean anything to anyone? Not really. Other they, than that there were cracks. Did they give us pictures? No. So, if you're a C-130 mechanic, congratulations, you know where this cracked. The origin points were found to be rivet holes. Do either of you remember why cracks start at locations like rivet holes? Because they're circular in nature? Well, because they don't usually have perfect Circles? cutting yeah. edges. There tends to be like little micro cracks around them cuts. So it's called a stress concentration. We've talked about yep. this before. With Check out shock. And yes. the comet. Yes, both. Yes. Can confirm. Porque no los dos. Rather than take you through the mechanical who's a what's it everything... We're going to make this subject very quickly accessible. Try to pull a piece of paper apart. Now try to punch a hole in it and pull it apart. One is much easier than the other. Exactly. The stress concentrates around quote-unquote flaws like that, meaning that although you're not exacting a strong stress on the material, the area around the flaw, or in this case the rivet holes, experience a higher stress. Even if they had perfectly cut rivet holes there would still be a stress concentration. Yes, of course. That's why you have to have certain numbers of rivets. Rivets? Rivets. Anyway, there were multiple cracks originating at rivet holes, and they met to create a 12-inch long crack. Uh, What? 12 inches. 12-inch long crack. Why didn't they find that? (sighs) What repair device have we discussed that can cover up fatigue cracks? (gasps) Stop! They put a freaking... What's it called? Episode 7. It's a thing over the... It's a doubler plate. Doubler plate. Oh, I remember what it is now. It was the tail strike. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So this was a manufacturer installed doubler plate that was covering the beginnings of the cracks. A doubler plate grew underneath the doubler plate. It sure did. (laughs) So to recap ever so briefly, a doubler plate is used to transmit stress over an area that has flaws, such as a crack. But that doesn't necessarily prevent the crack underneath from continuing, depending on how it's installed. I know that they can be effective. I just don't like, I don't like them. I just feel like they're effective when you can catch it soon enough. If really, you should just replace the part. Uh Uh-huh. That's my thought process, but I I ain't no way. If the crack is big enough, you need to put a doubler over it. You should probably just replace it. Yep. That doubler is like a good temporary fix, but ultimately you need to fix whatever the hell has a crack in it mm-hmm. so the cracks were actually found to have extended beyond what was covered by the doubler plate so they extended out from under the doubler plate and into the stringers beneath the doubler and across the lap joint between the middle skin panel and the forward skin panel i have no idea where that is but we have crack detection methods so why didn't they find them i reiterate Lockheed reported that, quote, non-destructive inspection methods could have detected the existing fatigue cracks in the wing lower surface skin panel prior to the accident occurring, end them, quote. Them some big cracks. You can probably figure out A how A 12-inch to- long crack? Yes. Are you freaking kidding me? Of course you could find it. We are. Even under a double plate. But how often are you looking? So the question becomes, how often are you looking for said cracks? It was inspected as often as was required by the U.S. Air Force manual. That's the whole unfortunate thing is like, 
they... They were following procedures. They were following everything they knew to. Yeah. However. That's the key word. But this plane is 60 years old. Not just that. Quote, C-130 operational loads recording programs has shown the firefighting missions to be substantially more severe than typical military logistics operations, and consequently, aircraft operated in this role would require inspection intervals as much as 12 times more frequently than typical military transport usage for meeting damage tolerance requirements, end quote. People think military aircraft are all rough and tough, but actually they get used so little compared to the rest of aviation, Well, and you their think inspection about, standards are very low. They did six passes that day uh-huh over the fire right like and those are not low g loads no they have a ridiculously heavy cargo and you're pulling out from a low altitude i mean yeah you did that six times on an airplane that already had cracks right six like times it doesn't surprise me that day but say they're doing this every day and they're doing 10 or 12 drops a day that's a lot That's of heavy a, maneuvering. a lot of load bearing on that airplane. Yes, it is. That You're pushing it to its furthest G load every time every you do that. Every time you do that. So. so down, pulling up hard. You're also dropping all that weight at the same time. You're expecting the aircraft to carry that weight. There's so much. Well, and then this is also assuming that you're staying within the operational constraints. Right. Yeah. This is a quote. An industry study was conducted during the fire seasons 1983 through 1989. The study, Operational Retardant Evaluation, or OR, addressed all phases of aerial firefighting. Excerpts from the study addressed the potential for fixed-wing airplanes exceeding their structural operating limitations. Recorders were installed on some of the airplanes for data collection. Airspeed and G-loading exceedances were recorded. Airspeed exceedances were associated with the normal practice of making downslope runs that resulted in airspeed increase. In one test airplane, a C-119, maximum drop speeds were exceeded over 90% of the time, and 2.5 Gs were exceeded on 17% of the drops, end quote. So I wouldn't say that increasing inspections by 12 times is excessive. I would say it's warranted. A hundred percent. Because you are working these aircraft. Well, and like I said, this aircraft is 60 years old, right? It's not like it's a brand new C-130. Mm-hmm. It's an old aircraft that has old metal that clearly is starting to fatigue because it's old. Yes. That's what happens. Yes. Stuff wears out. And, and it's being loaded. And you're being, you're putting the maximum, over the maximum amount of stress on this airplane. This is Consistently. Al- this yeah. is always like the key thing when they operate these firefighting aircraft, because rarely, if ever, are firefighting aircraft built for that purpose from scratch. They're usually retired from service, whether it be airline or military. For a reason. Because they're old. And then they're being repurposed for this. But that's going to require a lot of work. So they're old. It's a perfect combination of old, overloaded, overloaded, and overused. Yeah, they are used way more than the military ever did. So what this accident really brought to light was the overarching issue that at the time, there was no FAA standard in regard for firefighting mission aircraft maintenance. Nope. Which is a huge problem, especially when you're using old aircraft. Turns out. Damn. Yep. And people died. And people died. And people died. So we will come back after the break and... Go over the probable cause, but also politics. Discuss some things. Oh, God. We're back. I just realized I need to have the probable cause pulled up. Yes, you do the next part. So there's no findings or recommendations. No, there is not. 
But, but there have... is a probable cause. There yep. is a probable cause. This is a short report, but because of the uh, drama about it. <laughs> the, dr- the suspense. Drama. Also the fact that it was mechanical. We were able to pull this off in some manner. The National Transportation Safety Board determines the probable cause or causes of this accident to be the in-flight failure of the right wing due to fatigue cracking in the center wing, lower skin, and underlying structural members. A factor contributing to the accident was inadequate maintenance procedures to detect fatigue cracking. Yeah, I would that. say 100%. Yeah, so. So, politics. Politics. Let's <laughs> talk a little bit about this, because the FAA didn't have any standards for it, so. Although, okay, can we talk about Real quick, how, and I have a little bit of beef with this. Sure. That there, even today, there are mm-hmm. still things that don't have FAA standards on them that really should. Yes. Like, if it's going to fly in the air, the FAA probably should have done something on it. Yes. Some sort of, you need to check it this many times, it can only do this much thing, like... That's why crop dusters yes. have accidents constantly. Yes. Yeah. Like, why Why do we, now, in the 21st century, we're in 2023, why do we have, so even at, at this point, in 2002... Why do we have unregulated why stuff? Why do we have unregulated airplanes in the sky doing stuff? Right. <laughs> it's not to say they're completely unregulated, but the important parts aren't regulated. <laughs> Or overseen. Yeah. Right, which is kind of the same thing that's happening in general aviation. It's why we have such a high rate of general aviation accidents. And it's a hard thing, because again, we've talked about this in a previous episode, but when you break it down, when you start talking about industries that don't make much money, but you start regulating them to cost a lot of money, they become inefficient, ineffective, and impossible to operate. I just think and, it's it's dumb and stupid, yes. especially for something that is helping a... United States right. national organization right. that they don't have any standards on it. So, that said, we'll talk... Which a I'm bit. sure changed. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. But Because the aircraft was not being maintained by the military to military inspection standards and requirements and was instead being maintained basically to Part 91 with a military inspection guide. <laughs> well, okay, I have a question. Sorry. Yes. I know yes. you just started talking. It's okay. So... Who owned the air? Was the military owned the aircraft? No. No, whatever H&P was. Yeah, Hawkins something or other. So shouldn't they have an inspector? The FAA would assign an inspector. This is the political part. Okay. I know you're probably going to get there, but I'm confused as to like... Owned uh, by Hawkins and Powers Aviation in Grable, Wyoming. Yeah. This company... Yes, this company had nothing to do with anything. It's not even they their just problem. They owned the airplane? They owned the airplane, but because the Forestry Service and Department of Agriculture were operating the USDA. it. Right. Because they were operating the aircraft, and they were the ones doing the firefighting operation with it. Were they the ones responsible for keeping it maintained? More than maintained? likely, since they were the ones basically paying for the whole thing, and they were the ones that had to deal with it on a daily basis. They were the ones that should have been tracking hours on it. The company didn't really have a whole lot of oversight on it. I mean, yeah, they own the airplane, but that's about it. They bought it, modified it, and provided it to them and said, here it is. You now do what you need to do with it. It looks like H&P was doing the maintenance. Mm-hmm. Okay. The center wing inspections were being performed by H&P and were based on inspections taken from various U.S. Air Force technical orders. Right. So again, they're using a military manual, but they're maintaining it to Part 91 standards, which is next to nothing, by the way. It's not to say that aircraft aren't maintained at Part 91. They are, of course. There are many standards to this, but they are far fewer than what's required for most commercial operations of aircraft, let alone one that's put through such crazy maneuvers and 
such high use. So, many things were being overlooked, and the inspections were infrequent for the age and high use of the aircraft. At the time, there was no standardization for inspection intervals and requirements for such a large and sophisticated aircraft operating in a civil Part 91 world. Many people familiar with the firefighting operations of these C-130s, i.e. the inspectors that you brought up. Yeah. These inspectors from all over, not just FAA inspectors, actually inspectors at different departments of transportations in different states were also involved in this because individually many of them were having concerns when they would see these aircraft, which they were familiar with. They were familiar enough with, and they would see them operating in the fire areas, and they would get concerned about, hey, you're still maintaining that kind of like a Cessna 172, like, but it's a C-130. It, it's a C-130, and it's operating daily a lot. So they would raise the red flag, and they did many a times to the FAA. They said, hey, this is a problem. <laughs> you need to set some standards and inspect these things. That's a big machine. And they went as far as to, many of them actually had written in and had suggested that they ground these aircraft until standards were created because they were so concerned when they would walk up to the airplanes and go, this looks like crap. <laughs> and they actually went so far as to drag in the Department of Interior. Yep. Which is, you know, in charge of like the forests. And DOI personnel from all different states and inspectors were also involved in this. How was OSHA also not involved? Like you're putting people in danger. In some sense, I'm sure they were, but the FAA usually has more oversight on aviation-related workplace things than OSHA. That's a fine line. That is a fine line. Talking about two different departments of the government that regulate things. Many of these attempts, writing to the FAA, were unsuccessful, for the most part, as they were deemed impractical, huh? <laughs> depending on the environment what? and uses of the C-130. Impractical? Here's the fine line, right? Here's where they start having the problem. They deemed it impractical. They actually deemed that could be a higher safety risk to be inspecting these aircraft with more safety inspections and higher... Yeah, okay. How you know, does that make sense? How? Because you're taking the airplane apart more often and putting it back together more often. For okay, one. but then maybe you should just retire the airplane then. Right, but two, cost efficiency. I was I just going to say <laughs> It's a money thing. Of course it is. You're talking about operations that don't actually make money. It's not like these companies are making money fighting fires. Who's paying them? Like FEMA? Taxes. That's it. But they're not being they're not making millions of dollars off of that. They are breaking even, usually. Especially at the time. They were not making money. This was a job. That's about okay, it. Okay, okay. A crazy one. But people died. Yes, correct. Yeah, and that's it, why things changed. You don't get <laughs> here's the issue I have with the FAA. Every Time. It turns out the NTSB's with you. God, it's like, who cares? People are in danger. There are people flying these airplanes. Now, if this was a drone, okay. Right. All right. But people are flying these airplanes. You cannot be like, we can't do that. Yeah. That's not practical. The f it's yeah, not the, practical. The FAA deemed it impractical. They said that it was a higher safety risk and not cost effective enough to be possible for operations. And that's complete You're correct. You know how they actually fix that problem? You pay for it. Yeah. <laughs> you raise taxes slightly on everybody and you pay for it. Guess oh what? Most states, most states that have this fire danger, pay for it now. 
Yeah. Hi. <laughs> that would Colorado be Colorado, would be one where we have our own firefighting teams now. Including, independent companies. Including a 747, right? Uh, that one was moved on to another company. National bought it. National bought it. It's cargo freighter again. Damn. There's a long story behind that one. We could go into depth on why the 747 tanker did not last long. It was based in Colorado. It's the largest tanker in the world, but... What else was... do we have? Do we still have DC-10s doing it? Yeah, but those don't belong to us. Those belong to Tanker 10 out of California. Okay. Well, they They go all over the place. They come here if they're needed. I will say, I would like to thank whatever you hold holy, that we had so much snow this year. Yes. This snow season, because we're going to have a less disastrous fire season. Last year really wasn't too bad of a fire season for us. It was way lower. The year before was pretty bad. Than the year before, which was horrible. Well, and we... We didn't get a lot of moisture in April, though. Like, normally we get more right. than we did. Have you Not seen that the, we got none. Have you seen the forecast for this week? Yeah, but now we're going to be into storm seasons going a lot this week, so. I like rain. I don't like snow. I know. You also so. don't like tornadoes. I hate tornadoes. Our uh, severe weather forecast is a... Uh, Thunderstormy. Thunderstorms I'm okay with, as long as they don't twist into horrible storms <laughs> full of You know the worst? You know, tornadoes really aren't that big of a deal in Colorado. The big problem is actually hail. Oh, you're right. Oh, hail no. <laughs> oh, hail no. We didn't get and a lot it happens of hail. a lot. We didn't get a lot of hail last year. No, but... thankfully, but it could happen. The FAA had to bend a little, right? So over the years, this is all leading up to this accident, by the way. They need to bend like all a freaking contortionist for yeah, all I care. Yeah, they didn't. Like a bar that has too much weight on it. <laughs> yeah, like that. They... Like a wing, but never mind. Yeah. That doesn't bend, that breaks. <laughs> It didn't bend. We just co- we just covered that. It doesn't bend. It breaks. Yeah. So the FAA had to do something because lots of people and organizations were like, hey, 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 this is a big problem. You wave. So over the years, many abbreviated maintenance programs were developed that were intended to, quote unquote, standardize the maintenance procedures for these civil operated military surplus aircraft. But they all proved to be unsafe and were not enough to mitigate the glaring issues of the aging aircraft. More people in the industry, including people not in the U.S., actually, because this was more than just a U.S. problem, started raising the red flag again because they were like, OK, the FAA came up with like, oh, cool. You, you have a problem with that? OK. Here's a more regular interval to do really basic maintenance. They made a Band-Aid. They put a Band-Aid on it. Yeah, they put a Band-Aid on it. What they did was they said, okay, you need to be hitting the core things on a more regular basis. They put a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. Right. It doesn't work that and way. They, they were like, this fixes the problem, right? This is no. as much as we're willing to do. And they were like, no, the airplanes need to be inspected like daily. Like... <laughs> They are going through. They are going through crazy stuff. They need to be inspected a lot. They need to have a lot of work put into them. And it didn't really fix the safety problems because they were still like focusing on like, oh, the core things, the engines and the, you know, avionics and whatnot, but also, you know, control surfaces, but maybe not cracked. Last wings. last I checked, wings are pretty uh, core they, features. They are, they are, but control surfaces are considered still more important than the wings There themselves. are controlled surfaces on the wing. You're correct. And that's what controls the aircraft. But the wings, you talk about cracks. You in the can't wings. fly. Without wings. But you assume that the wings are there. <laughs> but what if they're not, Nick? <laughs> right. What that's if they this, come off? That, well, that's why this accident changed things, right? <laughs> <laughs> 
because You're correct. When they took off, they had wings. Because suddenly the FAA's standard of core things that needed to be inspected changed rapidly, right? Because they were like, wait a minute. Wings. Having, Everything's actually important. Having a 12-inch <laughs> crack underneath the doubler plate's a bad idea? Yeah. I, who could have told you that? Wow, what a surprise. History. What? Yes. Yep. Eventually, studies found these aircraft to be used to a very heavy extent, more than most other uses of the aircraft, and new regulations required that these aircraft need to be inspected on a much more frequent and thorough basis. No. Sherlock. That said, they initially, at the time of the accident report, were turning to the military for assistance for this. Ah! Right. Who else were they going to turn to? They're military airplanes. That is true. Since most of these were operated by the government, this also made a lot of sense because you're talking about getting the government involved in government affairs. <laughs> so we have a government operated aircraft. You are the military. You are the government. You owned it at one point. You know how to deal with it. Your problem. Now, the problem with this was they were basically asking the military to do the maintenance to do the inspections, bring the very thorough maintenance inspections that the military had to these aircraft, but they were asking the military to do it 12 times more often <laughs> than their own aircraft. Good. Yes. Agreed. Except that the military doesn't Wait, have time for no. that. No. <laughs> you know what? No. That's what they win. The military was like, cool, we got our own stuff to maintain. Since the accident. Many new operators have begun operating a much larger fleet around the world of older aircraft for firefighting purposes and have since implemented new standardized and regulated maintenance requirements, much more on par with how other civil and airline-type aircraft are maintained, but more closely tailored to the frequent heavy lifting and load changing that comes with firefighting aircraft, let alone the very frequent landing and taking off and flying and all of it. They kind of got smart in a way because they started, they did start building a handful of aircraft that were tailor-made for this kind of thing. Really? The, yep, absolutely. There's a Canadian-built aircraft that's now the standard use around the world. It is an amphibious aircraft, can land on land and water, and it's great because their whole thing is they don't actually have to land, quote-unquote, to get water. They just drag themselves through a lake, pick up a bunch of water. What aircraft is this? Pull it up. Lots of countries around the world use this thing now for fighting fires. And Thanks, Canada. It is a... The Canadians know how to do it right, eh? Yes. It's a wonderful <laughs> aircraft. It really was tailor-made for this, and so it's also tailor-made to be handled, you know, for... Heavy. Firefighting, which is wonderful. Now, that's not to say that Cal Fire, which is the largest firefighting fleet in the world, and... Tanker 10 and other organizations like them don't exist because they do, which operate, they kind of got smart about this, airliners. Why is that smart? Because they already have a very rigorous maintenance requirement. They get flown like crazy as it is as airliners. Facts. So getting inspected frequently isn't a normal thing. They already have everything in place to kind of regulate that. So it was kind of a smart thing. They got bigger aircraft. They figured out how to get the money for this through taxes, through whatever it be, different grants, funds, all the sorts of things. All sorts of different ways they do these things. They fly DC-10s, DC-8s, DC-9s. They've done it all over the years that do these kinds of things, firefighting. They still operate C-130 tankers, newer C-130 versions, but C-130 tankers. The BAE-146, or Avro RJ-85, if that's what you know it as, they use those as tankers. There are so many different kinds out there now. Helicopters, airplanes, you name it. They, they use anything and everything old. 
For the longest time, World War II aircraft were kind of the go-to. They would grab old, you know, B-25s and B-39s, B-36s. They would turn them into massive tankers and try to use those. But they kind of got smart and moved forward <laughs> some decades and got more modern aircraft that have higher, more rigorous maintenance procedures. So I have the U.S. Department of Agriculture Forest Service page pulled up for their fire planes. Mm-hmm. The Forest Service uses planes of many types and sizes to manage wildfires. Some are owned by the Forest Service, many are leased or contracted, and during high times right. of high fire activity, military aircraft may be activated. When aircraft aren't being used to support wildland fires, they may be used for other natural resource management activities, such as conducting aerial surveys of wildlife populations and forest health. Here are the categories they have. They have single-engine air tankers, or SEATs, which can deliver up to 800 gallons of fire retardant to support firefighters on the ground. These small planes can reload and operate in areas where large air tankers cannot. Aircraft types include the Air Tractor AT-802. Mm -hmm. Large air tankers, or LATs, can deliver 2,000 to 4,000 gallons of fire retardant to support firefighters on the ground. Aircraft types include the P-2V, the HC-130H, the BAE-146, MD-87s, C-130Qs, RJ-85s, C-130H, and J, equipped with modular airborne firefighting systems, or MAFs. C-130H. Cal Fire. <laughs> I see. The very large air tankers, or VLATs, are capable of delivering over 8,000 gallons of fire retardant to support firefighters on the ground. Aircraft type, DC-10. Tanker 10. Look up Tanker 10. They've got some new colors, actually, that are pretty cool over the last couple of years. They, they started painting their DC-10s in these cool, like, modernized... Oh, that's cool. ...tails. And they've got a fleet of a handful of these old DC-10s that are modified just for this. They have this big underbelly tank. Yeah. So then they have water scoopers, which are amphibious aircraft that skin the surface of a water body and scoop water into an onboard tank and drop it on a fire. Aircraft types include the Bombardier CL-415. That's the one. That's what you were talking about. And the Air Tractor Fire Boss, which can we talk about the name of that for a second? The Fire Boss? The yeah. Fire Boss. So Freaking dramatic. The CL-415 looks like this. It is one of the most common aircraft used, and it literally was built for nothing other than firefighting. That's all this airplane does. They were built specifically by Bombardier, or it was at the time Canadair, hence CL, for this. I see. That is what they do, and they drag through the water, pick up all the water, go back over the fire, drop it. They can do a bunch of runs in a very short period of time. Makes wonderful, sense. Wonderful aircraft that is designed solely for this purpose. Well, and in this case, they were close to Lake Tahoe. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it gets used for that all the time. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Although there's a lot of regulations about which lakes they are allowed to pick up from. Couple categories left. The smoke jumper aircraft deliver smoke jumpers and cargo by parachute for initial attack and extended support of wildland fires. Each of these aircraft can carry 8 to 10 smoke jumpers and their initial supply of gear. Aircraft types include the DH-6 300 series twin otter, short Serpa C-23A and SD-360, Dornier 228, and... C-A-S-A-212, or CASA-212. Yeah, it's a Spanish airplane. Oh, CASA-212. Yes, it looks like a C-130, but smaller with two engines. Okay, a mini C-130. It is. And then this one I actually have a quick story about. Um, is unmanned aircraft systems, or UAS, have great potential for use on wildland fires and in natural resource management. In contrast, unauthorized public UAS flights over or near wildfires threaten the safety of aerial and ground firefighters, and users are encouraged to know before you fly. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to talk about this one, just a quick second, when I was in college, not that long ago, we had to do what's called a capstone project or a senior design project. 
I I made an airplane tug because I am who I am. Yeah. But one of the other teams did something, I don't know, more prestigious. Sure. And they designed and made a prototype of one of these. Cool. Something to, it was an unmanned aerial device that would fly over fires and have thermal systems on board to determine other fire originations. Nice. Which is really cool. Yeah. There's lots of kind of equipment like that on, on different aircraft now. And so the dangers of this job. One local company, actually, who's pretty well known in northern Colorado, they fly crop dusters, but they have a couple of them that are modified for, they're like mini tankers for these purposes for fires. But they're also lead aircraft when they need to be because they're turboprops. Which is the next section, actually. Yes. And one of them had a really unfortunate accident last year. Oh. Here in Colorado. It was testing out some new equipment, had worn gear for the pilot to see the fires, basically through the smoke and stuff. And he was flying at night, which normally firefighting at night with aircraft is a no-go. It's a no. Don't do it. You, you don't. Because you can't see anything. Right. It has to be a nice day. Even though there's fire burning, it has to be a nice day. And he ended up still flying around at night and see fit. That's about it. That's, yeah. that's what happened. It was unfortunate. It was see fit. But he was testing out some new equipment that was handed to him that was supposed to be to help see fires. He was flying around the fire at night. It had turned to night. He was supposed to be able to see it at night. That was kind of part of the project. And he ended up doing CFIT, so that kind of ruined the project right then and there. Yep. So the last section I'm going to talk about is the aerial supervision module and lead planes, which coordinate, direct, and evaluate air tanker operations. Aerial supervision module lead plane pilots and or air tactical supervisors communicate with firefighters on the ground, other fire aircraft, and air tanker pilots. They release white smoke to show air tanker pilots where to drop fire retardant. These aircraft types include King Air 90s and King Air 200s. Yep. King Airs are the most common. For this because they're very maneuverable small aircraft that are capable of doing that. So I'm sending this page to Miranda so she can link it on the website. Cool. And it shall be done. And it shall be. It so is it, to be. So shall it be written? So shall it be done. So right. shall it be done. That is not the quote. Hold on. So let it be written. So let it be done. That is from the Ten Commandments. There you go. Thank you to all of those who were Catholics and grew up watching that. <laughs> Fair enough. So there. Okay. So that's pretty much the whole of it. Just know that a lot of things have changed. It's not to say that firefighting aircraft accidents aren't more regular still, because they are. But there's it's a much dangerous. larger... Yeah, it's a very dangerous job anyways, and it's very hard to but avoid. But I haven't, I haven't heard of nearly as many being because of maintenance. No, no. Maintenance isn't usually the problem. It's usually... The danger of the business. Yes. It is just a very dangerous thing to do. And that is unfortunately the nature of the job. And... It's a cool job, it's a crazy job, but it is a very difficult one. And there's a much larger fleet of aircraft than there even was then. I mean, there was a pretty large fleet, but they were small aircraft. They were not very... It was a very sidelined business. It was needed, but it was like, okay, bare minimum. Like, you get whatever's left over, no money. You know, it, it was a very cowboy kind of operation thing. Now it's very thought out, very regulated, very closely watched because it's kind of a very it's obviously a very important job but it's like it's a very different stigma around it i think these days you went from being like just a job cowboy operation mm -hmm. just a job to now it's like truly a heroic job they take like very high time pilots and and as global warming gets to be more and more of a problem wildfire season is getting worse and worse yes 
And we've seen that really bad in California and Nevada and Colorado, Colorado. and Utah over the years. Especially. Just Montana. Especially California, though. Montana, most people don't even, like, talk about this. But Oregon had some crazy ones, too. Well, Oregon had some bad ones. Washington had some bad ones. But here's the thing. Montana's so sparsely populated that people don't really think about it. Go look this up. They had fires worse than any of the other states, and nobody knows that because they don't care. Or they don't live there. <laughs> right. They don't live there. They, their, their kind of fires have been so bad in Montana, and it is crazy. California, of course, you hear about them because there's so many friggin' people in California. And so when there's a fire, it affects a lot of people. But their fires, while bad, still don't even come close to what burned in Montana over the last few years. Yeah. So there you go. We have a listener question. We do. We do? We, we do. do. We do. So this question came in from Lottie. Okay. And Hello, we, we, we don't ask for pronouns. So I'm just going to assume they them. Hi, all. Love the podcast. I'm currently working my way through your back catalog, which is definitely helping me stay sane in the last few weeks of uni. Good. So you're from the UK. Must be that <laughs> or Australia. Or something related to. I'm likely to be taking my first flight by myself sometime soon and the first flight since the pandemic from a regional airport in the UK to either Dublin or Paris. So there you go. UK. Yeah. Although I'm aware it's probably more dangerous driving my little car down the motorway than flying, I've always been a nervous flyer, so I was wondering if you have any advice to make flying more comfortable. Fly with Nick. And we have <laughs> stuff for you. So first of all, you're flying very short distance. Like I wouldn't worry about it. It's, yeah. it's literally, what, maybe an hour, two hours tops? Something like that. Like, Plus. seems like you're not flying for very long. Make sure you know what you're doing going through security. I, I, we always have everything off and out before we get through, but then I went to Heathrow and everything <laughs> changed. Everything's different over there. So, I mean, cause like they don't make you take your shoes off there, but, they um, but you have to take out your so strict about liquids there compared yeah. to the U S the U S they stopped caring by the way. I mean, yeah, not, obviously not really if you're over, if you have a large liquid budget, they'll make you throw it out. If you have a large container of liquid, they're going to find it and make you get rid of it. Yeah. But if you don't take your toiletry bag out and you have like other liquids scattered throughout your bags, they're not going to, they don't care. Like for me. I don't take my toiletry bag out when I, I never, on a trip. I nope. never have to never do. And then I also have my like little cologne bottle that I carry and I keep it in like, it's just a little like pocket. Scentbird. Yeah. Scentbird. Not sponsored, but I throw that thing in a different pocket in a different bag and they don't look at that. And I have my empty water bottle and they don't pull that out or look at that. And I also have like a little bottle of hand sanitizer in a different pocket in the same bag. And they won't make me pull all those things out or anything. Like they don't care. As long as it's not a giant bottle of liquid. Heathrow cares a lot. Heathrow. Heathrow. They, they care a lot. Oh, my it. God. They do not shut up about it. But uh, you're like some of your electronics, they won't make you take out of your bag. Like and, I took my switch out and I got yelled at. I got yelled at for taking I my switch out. I am so infuriated, just like everybody else. And probably honestly, so are the TSA. But with the TSA and the way that they have zero consistency, line, yeah, to, line to line, not line to airport line, to airport, literally but line also to line. airport to airport. An example of this, I just came back from Portland recently and the line that I was in, the guy was like, my line only take nothing out of your bags, take off your shoes, belt and jackets. The hell? Everything goes in a bin. That's it. Everything in one bin, jackets on the bottom, shoes on the bottom, bag on top. That's it. Okay. And that was the easiest I've ever gone through security. But the lines next to it were like old-fashioned lines. Take your laptop out. Take your electronics larger than cell it's, phone it's out. It's crazy. Take out your water bottle. But this is not put, relevant to Lottie. 
No. Right. Well, so, my point is, is like know you, what you need to do and have do it out before you get through. Do the best you can to know what you can know, what you need to know before you go through security. Uh, download a lot of stuff to watch, yep. read or whatever on the plane. I um, recommend make yourself a list. Do a list. Do, do a couple of lists. We always do a day trip list because we go on day trips, doing one next week. And then on top of that, we make lists for like weekend trips or for longer trips, things that you need. And in those lists, I say... Always put in the important things, too, at the top, i.e. set your alarm. <laughs> Phone, wallet, keys. Phone, wallet, keys. Those Passport if you're going to another country. Right. Always at the top. And then everything else that you have found through the years you need. And we have... Pack of tissues. We have found... Pack of tissues. Our tissues. balance, basically, of things that we find we need on these trips. Uh, portable chargers. Portable chargers, extra cables should a cable go bad. Headphones, an extra set of headphones if it's really going to drive you nuts if one of them goes bad if or you, dies. If you have issues regulating pressure during ascent and descent, bring a pack of gum. Gum, yep. Yep. Yes, tissues. You know, if you feel like you need a travel pillow to be comfortable, okay, a travel pillow. But I recommend finding one that works for you. Don't just get a generic one because we have tried so many and I have found that many of them I don't like. Yeah. Get a fanny pack. Like I don't fanny packs. I don't use a fanny okay, pack. Okay, shut up. But you guys do, and I understand. Bring a I water bottle. I don't usually use them on day trips. But yes. Bring an empty water bottle. Don't want to be dehydrated. Right. As far as what to wear, dress as if you have to go down the emergency slide. Because you yes. might. Yes. So wear shoes that won't come off your feet. Wear pants. Long pants. Yep. Wear... Don't, uh, wear, don't Do not wear a crop top. Do not be my intern. Yeah. <laughs> don't wear heels... Don't wear flip-flops. No. The canvas slides will burn you. Yes. They're not comfortable. It's the, not like a water slide. The days of formal flying are long gone. We all know that. Don't do it anyways. Be practical about it. You can do smart wear. It still look pretty good business, but also be smart about how you dress and wear when you're be going onto an airplane. You want to be comfortable, look decent, but also be smart about it in the event something happens. Planes can be cold. Bring a jacket. Planes can be hot. Bring a hair tie. I would say, especially if you're a nervous flyer, just know that flying is mostly safe. So this is, take this how you will, because I was having this conversation with a guy in the airport the other day who's a frequent flyer, and we were having really good conversations, actually. This was really fun. I was sitting, actually waiting to go to Portland, and this guy was sitting next to me because, you know, my flight was delayed. He had plenty of time. So we were just chit-chatting about things. Regular flyers based in Salt Lake City. Great. We were talking about all sorts of things. And he... Uh, you know, I, I was like, okay, the thing that always, for me, when you get on an airplane, just remember, time to relax. Like, from that point forward, it is out of your control. And I know that that can sound morbid, but trust in the process is my point. Trust in the process and remember there's nothing you can do differently. You wait, can wait. understand how to do all the safety things yeah. should something happen. Wear your seatbelt. Read the safety information card. 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 But then beyond that, that's your time Just, to do whatever. The, yeah. Turn your freaking phone off. Put it on airplane mode, even if they got free messaging. To be honest, set your mind at ease. Take a nap. Watch something. Do anything other than think about stressful things. If at that point you are still a nervous flyer, no shame. There is no shame in that. It's okay. It is. It's very normal. If you have messaging on that flight, you can message us on Facebook. Yep. Well, we can talk you down. Yep. Nick will talk you down. Sure. 
<laughs> if there's a sound you don't recognize, mm-hmm. record it. Yep. Nick will tell happened. you exactly what it is. Something or you happened. can ask a flight attendant. It's yeah, not too. like they won't tell you what it is. Yeah. We were on a very, very, very noisy 757 going to San Francisco <laughs> a few weeks ago. And if I didn't know that that was the flap sound, I would have been a little freaked out, okay? The flap but is I just so looked, loud on the I airplane. just looked at Nick and went, why the are the flaps so loud it's so funny because we got to fly on the 757 300 old old bird and then we got to fly on a320 neo Neo. like brand new (laughs) a320 neo it was literally less than two years old and it was just funny because you get the the Start comparison between the, the two. loudest of the loud and very, the softest of the very soft. powerful but cramped old airplane that makes so much noise in everything it does. Fortissimo, pianista. Versus an A320, which is silent in everything it does. Silence. It's so quiet. Comfortable I can't and sleep. silent. It's so quiet. I can't sleep. See, to me, it's just it's so nice. I the neos are so nice. It's such See, a different experience. I'm I'm the weird. So I. I can sleep really well in cars and trains because you get that little vibration mm. and you have the noise and mm. it, it drifts me to sleep. Planes are too quiet and too smooth. So when you get that little bit of turbulence, it rocks me to sleep. Sure. It's it the does to only me too. way I can sleep. It does to me too, but at the same time, I can sleep in smooth flight. I don't know. I, I sleep on anything. If I'm, I'm tired, I'll sleep. Yeah. It's pretty if, I, if I have enough uh, And I'm usually tired. <laughs> I have enough wine or Zequil. You just gotta make sure you don't do it on an don't, empty stomach. Don't drink wine on an empty stomach because then you're right gonna... before a flight, or you're gonna be like Christy and throw everything in your stomach up. Every single into a barf bag, and then it looks like yeah. blood. And then the flight attendant's like, "Are you okay?" And I'm like, "I'm fine. It's wine. It's don't wine. look at me like that." Every one of us is gonna probably sleep on the flight, one of the two flights next week, because that is going to be a much longer day than it's y'all realize. Early flight, and then we come back late. Yeah, we're gonna be <sighs> up for. A long time. 18 hours. Don't don't quantify it. From takeoff to landing. Don't quantify it. 18 hours. Okay. So anyway, the point being, just know that it's the safest form of transportation. It's okay to be nervous, but to be perfectly honest with you, if you have any if you have any questions, just ask the flight attendants. Yes. Or us there for whatever. Enjoy the view. Get a window seat, enjoy the view. Just know you'll be okay. Everything's good. And then let us know how it goes. There's nothing else to do. All right. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate it. If you have recommendations, remember you can send those to us via email. You can also message us on any of the variety of social media apps we have. Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Facebook, Twitter. Twitter. We'll find it somewhere. We might not answer you right away. We do see it. We don't always answer right away. So just be aware. Like it's, We're not ignoring you. We're just busy no. people That's who right. have jobs. That's <laughs> right. And we do love listener questions like this. Like This is a great conversation starter, obviously. We've been chatting here for a while. So. Yes. Yeah, so if you have a question like this, or any question... And hopefully our podcast puts most minds at ease anyway. Most of the stuff that we've talked about will not happen on any flight anymore. No, and you have to remember that everything we talk about happens in the industry changes because of it. And yes, it's bad to say, okay, we wait until something happens, but also they don't. You'd be surprised. For everything that we talk about that happens, there's 8,000 other things that they take care of before it becomes an issue. That's why we have the NTSB. Yep, and the FAA and all those things. We bash on them, but the reality is they all still do a job. So, and they've managed to do a good one because really accidents just don't happen. They just don't. Things happen still in aviation, but they just aren't usually deadly when it comes to commercial aviation. Not anymore. And they're not as frequent. Right. I mean, a- accidents happen. Oh, yeah. Right? Because people fly airplanes and people make mistakes, right? General and aviation is the big I think the big, the big one that commercial airliners do is over on runways. Like, that happens. Yeah. That- <laughs> not even super frequent, but semi-often. Yeah. Like, it, it happens every once in a while and you have Nine- to get nine- off. And-, and almost every time it's complete non-incident. Yep. It sucks. <laughs> you you have to- <laughs> 
on the airplane. You have to crawl through the mud, get all your stuff off the airplane, yeah. get on a bus to the terminal. Okay, end of story. They but pull the airplane out of the mud, they do an inspection on it, it goes back to flying. Ultimately, usually not anything. It's a non-issue. You know. So just keep that in mind. You know, stuff like this doesn't usually happen very often. Right. Like crashes and things like that just don't really happen Gosh, anymore. Gosh, no. No. Unless you're flying on a weird aircraft in the middle of like Africa or something, yeah. or if you're flying in Russia, I can't yeah. say anything. I, I don't about recommend Russia flying in Russia right now. No. Or around Russia, or through Russia, or to Russia, or to over Russia, or Ukraine <laughs> for that matter. No. Anyway, yeah. So apart from that, if you'd like to, like I said, there's a listener question thing on the website. If you have any questions, there's also stories. Yep. If you'd like to submit a story, or if you've never listened to one Dude. of our stories before, they are on the website. You will laugh. You will cry. And everything in between. They're, they're a trip. They really uh, are. You will get to know David very intimately. Yes. <laughs> just as he knows us intimately. Yeah. And then please feel free to check out the merch page. And also, if you feel like you would like, you can check out the Patreon, which we are going to do probably a fairly short post episode for this. But there will be some extra content to check out. So. Yes. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by the lovely Paige. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.